Hello, this is Jenna Cantor with Danelle Dixon. I'm here to talk about hip labral tears. Honestly, when I first started working with performing artists, that's the first thing I saw a lot. And I, I thought, oh my God, I have not done a podcast on this. What the heck? So, Danelle, thank you for coming on again, returning to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. <laughs> Can't get enough of you. She's also a mentor of mine. So, uh, seriously, she is a person to go to if you are in D.C. So, would you mind explaining first what the heck is a hip labral tear? Because we can't make assumptions here. Definitely. So, a hip labral tear basically is an interruption to the rim of cartilage that surrounds the hip joint. So, looking at the hip joint, it is a ball and socket joint. Um, You have a relatively big socket, a relatively comparatively small um, ball, but basically because there is a there is a discrepancy between the the surface area the body puts in a little bit of cartilage to give it a little bit more security and a little bit more stability so it really increases the surface area and just how much contact is in there and that tissue is there to really increase the stability at the joint as it moves through its range of motion in all directions. So it's, it's kind of like a little bit of an extra support that that hip has in order to move all the way through the degrees of freedom that it needs to move. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. That was, you're so good at explaining things to people in layman terms, but then sounding so intelligent. And then I must mention that her hair looks on point as usual. She always is like this elegant performer. She comes in and she wears these sunglasses and I'm like, Danelle is here. So just like, even when I'm in her presence, just imagine as she's speaking, just the grace she just brings to the arena. <laughs> okay. So Let's talk about surgery versus non-surgery. All your opinions. Let's get massive truths here. Sure. So for hip label tears, um, when you have an interruption to that cartilage, you now have a a problem with stability of that joint. Um, The stability of of the joint is very important, specifically if you're performing artists. You know that we need a lot of flexibility and range of motion in our hips to get those legs up to the front, to the side, to the back. If you have an interruption to that labrum, you now have an instability issue that your muscles now have to compensate for. That extra motion, depending on the location and the size of the tear, is going to determine how much instability there is and how much those muscles now have to compensate to stabilize you as you move. So if... Again, it really all depends. That's kind of the answer that I'm trying to allude to here. It depends on the location of the tear. It depends on the size of the tear. It depends on how much symptoms that you're having. Um, Symptoms of a labral tear usually are clicking, catching, locking, in specific motions. For dancers and for performing artists, as they're moving through those quick motions, it can really affect how much pain that they have when they elevate their legs, when they go into their developes, their grand batmas. It can even um, affect them with splits, with um, lunging motions. You do a lot of very quick directional turns, so that's where you get those symptoms being presented at that point in time. So really, you want to figure out how much are your symptoms affecting you? Can you go with a conservative method depending on the size and location of the tear? If it is too big and those conservative methods, specifically physical therapy, um, restorative exercises, that sort of stuff is not successful, then you're looking at a surgical intervention um, where you have to kind of go in and surgically repair that tear. 
So it really all depends on the size and location is a summary that I want to get out here. And regarding surgeries for hip labral tears, what is the, su the success rate? The success rate, that's an interesting question because, again, it depends. It depends on um, the severity of the injury. It really depends on the surgeon, in my opinion. Okay, um, for performing artists, I think it's, it's critical that you get a surgeon that has not only done the surgery multiple times, but also knows how dancers perform. So a repair on a layperson who's walking around the street is very different to the requirements that a performing artist needs. And dancers, if, this is, if any dancers are listening to this podcast, if there's one thing that I cannot stress more enough is that you have to get a surgeon or a medical professional that understands the requirements of dance in order for you to do what you need to do. They are going to be the ones that are going to be very specific in making sure you get back to that range of motion. And not the range of motion of the 70-year-old grandma who sits every day. That's not what you do all day. So that's very important. Um, so the success rate, um, dancers, um, in, 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 my, in my experience, have not gotten a lot of surgical repairs just because usually they catch it before and they usually, you know, conservative rehabilitation is successful. But those that do do it, again, depending on, again, location, type of, of the tear that happens and the type of surgery that happens, and the surgeon, I'm sorry, that happens, usually have a successful return. Dancers are really good at rehab, and again, it really depends on choosing the right healthcare provider. Yes. Length of time from recovering from a surgical procedure. I know it varies. I know it's the, it depends, yeah. as always, but um, I would love for you to talk about the patients involved with that. Got it. Um, I would say that... Now, these days, in terms of the, t of the technique that's being used, you're looking at six weeks to two months before you would, I would say you can get into a class and you can start doing some stuff at the bar and gentle range of motion stuff. That's what I would say. Um, typical ranges range from, I would say, two to four months. I think three months are usually the, 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 the landmark. Around that time, people are like doing, I would say, 80% of what they were doing before. Of course, that depends that you're actually doing your rehab, you're following all of your protocol measures, um, and there's no complications with the surgery. What would you recommend for these performers who don't have a hip labral tear, or they have one at this point, what do you recommend uh, that are common, we're generalizing, everybody is different, keep this in mind, mm -hmm. that they could start doing now that can really help them work optimally without having to get surgery. Of course, you need to see a medical professional, but just something you could do right now. Um, def definitely. Um, something that you can do right now is start really strengthening your pelvic floor, your core stability muscles, and your hip stabilizing muscles. Um, and dancers consistently, um, through all genres, the weakest muscle is the external rotator, the piriformis. You would be surprised how flexible dancers are and they rely on momentum in order to keep their range of motion or to perform the things that they do without the stability component. And stability is the name of the game when you come to hip label tears. You have an interruption to that joint, it is not stable. Your muscles are going to start grabbing above and below the joint in order to stabilize it as much as possible. So inevitably, the lower back, the hip, the quads, the, low, the, the thigh area, and also the pelvic floor gets involved. So things that dancers can really do to start addressing that right away is to start really strengthening those areas. You support everything around the joint, the joint intrinsically becomes more stable. And that's really the name of the game that they can do. So again, I would target um, hip external rotators, 
um, I would target um, core stability. Dancers really don't do enough um, core stability work. We, we think we do, but we really don't. Um, so I think those two would be the ones that I would target first. Would you mind going a little bit into when you're saying pelvic floor muscles? Because mm-hmm. all I think of is peeing. Like, what the heck do you mean by that? I'm di- and I'm thinking from you guys, like, what I did not know before going into this profession. So if you could go into that, that'd be great. Sure. So pelvic floor muscles, um, basically, think of your, your core muscles as a Coke can. You have the top part, which is your diaphragm. You have the surrounding muscles, the side of the Coke can, which is your transverse abdominus going all the way to the back. Your pelvic floor is the bottom of those muscles, okay? It's the bottom of your Coke can. The reason why those get involved is literally proximity, okay? If you're looking at it from an anatomical standpoint, the hip is right there, the pelvic floor is right there. Those pelvic floor muscles inevitably start getting engaged if there's instability at the hip. And uh, kind of taken a step back and looking at a lot of orthopedic injuries where there's chronic back pain, hip pain, um, incontinence issues, there's usually an underlying pelvic floor issue. So that's where those things coincide. Um, the muscles that we are talking about, um, particularly is um, obdurator internus, is also some of the levator ani muscles that start getting involved. Those are the ones that really start supporting the bottom of that cocan. And if those are not engaged, you have an incomplete system that is not contracting well to stabilize the spine and indirectly the pelvis and the hip. So that's how that, that works. Did I answer your question? Yeah. No, yeah. You went in great. Yeah. No, you got much more specific. And of course, some some of the muscles that she mentioned at the end, we don't expect you to know this, but she's just, I'm getting her to go into more depth because otherwise people say pelvic floor and you really don't know where your brain needs to go. So she just got a little more specific, but even in areas where it seems a little bit blurry on what muscles are, whether, where they're located and all that, that's okay. If you don't know that that's where the medical professional comes in because you can Google all you want, but at the end of the day, you can't, I can't treat my, I'm a physical therapist. I can't treat myself. Danelle's a physical therapist. She can't treat herself. You need to go to someone else who can really see the full picture. That being said, would you mind sharing a story of somebody who went through a hip labral tear, tear, they had one, and they, would you, I would love to hear two stories actually. One story of somebody who went the conservative approach and did not get surgery, Mm -hmm. and another one where they did get a surgical, a surgery, and their story. It doesn't matter if they had um, a success specifically after that story, just to share the journey because everybody's journey is going to be different. These are just some so you can get a peak of other people's experiences and see how going to a medical professional can help you. Got it. Um, interesting question. So to answer the first one, um, I'm actually currently treating a dancer that has a hip labral tear um, that was diagnosed over three years ago. She's been suffering for three years, which is a long time. Her journey has been interesting. She has come to me after going to um, a DO and has done um, PRP injections She's done prolotherapy. Um, What's PRP? Sorry. What's DO? <laughs> DO. So um, Dr. Osteopathy is a physician that um, works more on the conservative side in terms of not doing um, direct surgery. Um, prolotherapy is a technique where they inject um, a, a fluid solution. It's usually a saline or sugar solution 
into the joint to stimulate an inflammatory process in the in the goal of healing. Um, PRP um, basically is platelet rich plasma. plasma is basically where they go in and they inject again platelets into that joint or that area that has the injury again with the with the concept that that would stimulate the healing process. Um, so she's gone through these procedures. Um, not particularly fun if you're not a fan of injections. Um, the interesting thing about her case is she has left a left hip labeled here that was diagnosed in retrospect. Her first diagnosis was actually patellofemoral pain, which is um, a disorder of the knee. Um, that was unresolved. Later on, they found a hip label tear, and they're like, oh, this must be causing the knee pain. And they have been going through in terms of treating the hip and then treating the knee and then treating the back. Because, you know, again, as I said before, you know, if you have instability at a joint, everything around starts grabbing to try and help you out. So she has one injury that has now morphed into probably four, which is interesting. Okay. Um, I have seen her for, let's see, maybe seven visits. And she was a tough cookie because like most dancers, as you know, you tell them not to do something and they do it anyway. So there was that, you know, so we, we had a little bit of a battle of Okay, you're feeling great today. Oh, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do bachata all night. Why? Why why would you do that? Yes, dancers, I'm talking to you. Don't do that. Um <laughs> so we had a little bit of a battle, but we've now gotten to the point where for the first time, I think before we I come to this conference, she's not had pain and this is now visit number seven. She's been suffering for three months, for three years. It's been that long. And she's just like, Oh my god, I don't have pain. I can dance now. No, you can't dance quite yet, but we'll get you there. You know what I mean? Um, so oh, No, I know. Because <laughs> I spoke to you because I had a patient at a similar spot than you. And like similar, she's she's so good now. Mm-hmm. But now we're mm-hmm, same page. Yep, yep. It's, 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 it's a little bit of a mindset to realize that you have to walk before you can run or you can dance. But we'll, we'll get there. So that's an example of um, a conservative... Um, a conservative treatment that is now in the process of going well. She, she her, her journey was a little bit longer. She had a lot of different providers before coming to me. Um, an example of um, someone that had a surgical intervention. This was actually an old patient. He came in for something different, um, went away, he got better, and then had um, a hip label repair and then came to me, and it was a very interesting surgery. The approach was very different. The rehab is very different. It was now an outpatient procedure. There's no hospitalization. It's an anterior, um, it's on the front. front. It's a front um, incision. Usually they do incisions in the back. An incision was in the front at this point in time. And he sailed out of PT, to be honest. He was, I, I saw him twice a week for maybe three weeks and then once a week. And he was done in two months. And, and, and his goal was he, and he does like line dancing. Um, his goal is that he wanted to ski and he didn't get to ski because he missed the snow season or something happened. But two months he was, he was, I'm just like, oh, we can hang out, but you really don't need to be here. Like he was, he was fine. So I think the, I think the benefit of, of, um, doing the surgical interventions these days is that surgery has advanced. It's gotten a lot less restrictive. They've lessened how much um, cutting that they're doing, which makes the recovery time a lot faster. And again, if you get a good surgeon who knows what he's doing, which this one definitely did, and you get a PT who's aware of what your limitations are and um, what you want to get back to, you can really sail right out of rehab pretty quickly. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. I want to acknowledge just because I've had patients with different stories. Mm -hmm. If you are a person who's going and you hear going through and you've had surgery and you're not recovering in that short period of time, do not beat yourself up. Do not think there's something wrong with you. Every body is different. Every surgical procedure is different. You cannot compare. Your journey is your own journey. And I need, need, need to emphasize this because I've definitely had patients where it has been very rough hearing about other people's shorter recovery time. And of course, if you're dealing with something for a long time, you're going to ask and compare. And you're like, what's wrong with me? Why am I dealing with this? Mm -hmm. So you are normal. You are fine. Keep pushing forward. There is hope. Be patient with yourself. And I'd love to add something to that. Um, I think one key aspect um, that I believe dancers and actually all patients need to be aware of is that you have to get involved in your rehab. You cannot be passive in this. This is your body. This is your career. This is your dance life. You are in charge of it. You are responsible for asking questions of your physical therapist, of your physician, of your healthcare providers, of every single question that you have one about. There's no dumb question. Um, one thing that I make sure that I share with my patients, dance or not, is um, if they are post-operative, meaning they've just come out of surgery, that I give them what we call a protocol, and you, a rehab protocol. And this is basically a timeline that goes through milestones that at every single point, one week, two weeks, three weeks, you have certain things that you, have, you should have achieved. So that way it keeps you motivated. It keeps you on track on, okay, I should be walking at week one, I should be able to do a mini squat at week two. So that way you're motivated, but you're also accountable, not only for yourself, for your progress, but to your healthcare provider. If something is up, you catch it early. I cannot emphasize how many times I've told dancers, you need to be aware of this. And they just say, well, the doctor told me to do this, so I'm just going to rest and relax. And then seven months later, and this is a different condition where they can't bend their knee past 120 degrees, they're wondering if their dance career is over. I can't tell you that it's over, but it's going to be a lot more difficult after seven months. Yep. You know, it's up to you to be in charge of that. You have to be proactive. And I know medical culture does not, does not encourage a lot of questions. This is your body. You have one. If you go to the car shop, you go to a car dealership and they... And they give you, and they say, I want $4,000, I need $4,000 to, re, to replace the engine. You'll get a second opinion. You, you, you ask questions. So I'm saying you have one body. You can't replace it like a car. You have to have, you have to hold yourself and your medical professionals to a higher standard of accountability of, am I getting the right information? Am I moving forward the right way? Am I achieving my goals? That's entirely up to you. So just wanted to put that plug in there. Thank you, Snaps. Awesome. Thank you so much, Danelle, for coming on. You are a joy. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. How can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, three, the number three, PTDC. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Performance Plus Physical Therapy. You can email me, info at the number three, PTDC.com. I am on social media. You can email me or you can just pop into my clinic and say hi, downtown DC, if you're around. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Bye.